0: So the ultrasound is a very good tool because it's accessible, it's uh, not expensive, it's non-invasive, you can get an answer right away. The technology we have now is fantastic. We, we have much better resolution
1: in seeing the things we need to see. I think where the training really comes in is being able to interpret the scan and to be confident in what you're seeing.
2: That was Dr. Jean-Paul Maxum and Dr. Mohamed Bardi talking about ultrasound in the diagnosis and management of large vessel vasculitis. They are our guests on this episode of Around the Room, the Canadian Rheumatology Association podcast. Hi, I'm your host, Daniel Ennis. Today on Around the Room, I'll be talking with Dr. Mohamed Bardi, a rheumatologist and US SONAR fellow and faculty additionally trained in vascular ultrasound. He is a clinical instructor at the University of British Columbia We are also joined by Dr. Jean-Paul Maxoum, an assistant clinical professor of medicine at the University of Montreal, specializing in vasculitis. Thank you both for coming on the podcast. Thanks
0: for having us. Thank you.
2: So today we are going to be talking about the use of ultrasound in large vessel vasculitis. So maybe first we can start out with a little bit of context. Jean-Paul, what led you to pursue vascular ultrasound and vascular medicine training?
0: Well, it's mostly um, due to my interest in vasculitis in general, so it's rare to have difficulty diagnosis, diagnosing a vasculitis in 2020, and this led me to do vascular ultrasound to pursue new techniques in the diagnosis of GCA. It's really um, an exciting time in vasculitis. We're rediscovering everything in, in GCA from the diagnosis to treatment, so I wanted to be part of that.
2: Excellent, and Mo, well, how about you?
1: So when I went through my rheumatology fellowship, our vasculitis expert, Dr. DeGand, really demonstrated how frustrated she would get with GCA. I think it was, it became more clear to me that GCA wasn't just headache, race, CRP, and treat, but there's a lot of nuance to it, and as I saw that clinically, I think I became more interested in seeing what are the other options, and my interest in MSK ultrasound really showed me what's possible with vascular ultrasound and I got really excited about the prospect of being uh, involved in
2: that. Excellent. So maybe uh, maybe listeners haven't actually seen this in, in process. Mo, can you actually describe uh, the procedure of doing a vascular ultrasound and, and how you use that?
1: Yeah, so really for me, what, so when the patient comes in the room, you know, usually you're sitting in front of the patient, my patient will come lay down. Um, You know, they'll turn their head to the side and I go through a scan and I'm usually talking to them, getting more history and detail as I'm scanning them, but I start with scanning the common temporal uh, artery, we scan the, uh, the frontal branch, the parietal branches, and as I'm scanning I'm looking at the vessel wall, how thick it is, I'm compressing the vessels as I go to see Do the vessels compress normally or are they abnormally uh, swollen edematous where they don't compress? And as we're doing this, I'm gathering more history. I'm talking to them. I'm explaining to them sometimes what GCA is, what their symptoms, clarifying their symptoms. And then we switch over to looking at the large vessels. So I'll look at the auxiliary vessels. I'll look at the subclavings, the carotid vertebrals. And again, um, looking for any large vessel involvement as I go through that process with them. Um, And usually that scan, initially when I was learning this, it would take about 40 minutes. Um, Now it's down to about 20 to 30 minutes, depending on the case.
2: Excellent. Jean-Paul, can you tell us a little bit of why we should use ultrasound instead of, or in addition to, the available diagnostic tools?
0: Right. It's a very good question. So the ultrasound is a very good tool because it's accessible, it's uh, not expensive, it's non-invasive, You can get an answer right away, as opposed to a biopsy where you have to wait for histology. And, I mean, if you're not sure of the results, then there's other things you can do. So it's not the end of the world, but it can give a a quick initial assessment that's uh, easy to get uh, if you're you're trained and if uh, people around you are trained in it.
2: You actually spoke to something important, which is uh, accessible. So while ultrasound is accessible and vascular ultrasound in general is accessible, I, I feel like vascular ultrasound for large vessel vasculitis not so accessible. Can you speak to, to that, Mo?
1: Yeah, I, I think I agree with Jean-Paul in the sense that the technology we have now is fantastic. We, we have much better resolution in seeing the things we need to see. I think having the training to be able to do the scan, technically it's not a hard scan. To do but I think where the training really comes in is being able to interpret the scan and uh, to be confident in what you're seeing uh, and to know the limits of you know when it's not positive and you still have a suspicion like what do you do next right but I think that it's definitely a skill that rheumatologists can learn uh, I think there's more and more centers where this is becoming accessible and there's international courses uh, in Europe and North America now that are teaching this um, so I think that uh, and with the, with the right mentorship, as more people gain tra- uh, training with this, having the mentorship to kind of uh, spread this knowledge so that p- more people can pick this up is becoming more accessible.
2: What are some of the major limitations in the imaging that we have other than ultrasound, where ultrasound really fills an important gap there other than the uh, access and some of the other things that you've already mentioned? So I think, I think
1: the key thing is if we start to look at the data, we know that like MRI, for instance, is a really great tool. Um, Three-Tesla MRI, which gives you much better resolution, can be used in cranial GCA, but not all centers have access to that. Uh, the data tells us that once you start someone on high-dose prednisone, within four days, you lose over 50% sensitivity. And to be able to get an outpatient MRI for a patient in four days is not feasible in most centers, uh, certainly not in Vancouver. Um, If we look at uh, CT scan, uh, CT scan for the cranial vessels just doesn't have the resolution to see those vessels. If we look at PET scan, this is a very emerging technology in 2018, 2019, there's now papers saying that we can use PET to look at the cranial vessels. Again, even in Vancouver, at our center, outside of oncology, we really don't have access to PET and you need expertise, you need radiologists for using that scan, they know what to look for. And it comes back to what I said with MRI. Uh, Within four days, you lose over 50% of your sensitivity. It's not a feasible, practical, first-line test.
2: And when you say sensitivity there, you mean for your biopsy, or you mean for a positive test?
1: Sensitivity, so, sorry, if I step back, sensitivity, MR, ultrasound, PET, the sensitivity with, uh, even in ultrasound with modern probes, you're approaching 80 to 90% sensitivity. That stands across all the imaging modalities, which is great. Um, And that's for confirming disease. But we know that with ultrasound, for instance, your sensitivity drops off. Within two weeks, the vessels can normalize,
0: but we tend to think that we have a bit more time than four days. Um, If if I may add, I really agree with Dr. Barty on this. and Not only the accessibility is an issue with with all these techniques, but also it's a bit like ultrasound. There is an inter-reader variability. And and radiologists that read the MRI and the, and the nucleus that read it, they need to, to get some practice. You know, they need to read at least 15 and 20 exams before they start reading. So it's a bit like ultrasound. And and you need to find a really motivated radiologist to to practice before uh, getting uh, diagnostic exams.
2: And that's such a good point, because I would say that that applies not, not just to radiology, which absolutely does, or ultrasound, which of course it does, it also applies to pathology just because um, one pathologist is not necessarily equal to another. And I think they would totally agree that there's a lot of art in their science. And I think that's the same with imaging and definitely true in rheumatology. So there is gray area in all of this and finding the exact uh, way to mesh the, the different modalities we have together, that's important. So so we've talked about some of the the upsides. How about some of the downsides? Maybe we'll start with Jean-Paul. What are some downsides to ultrasound?
0: Well, when you, when you do ultrasound for GCA, you have to be accessible and you have to do it fast because that's, uh, that's the key point. It's to diagnose fast and to be accurate. So you, you need to, to be available to do the exam and you need to find the time to do the exam because, I mean, it's still an extra 30 minutes that pops out here and there during your day that's uh, unpredictable. So that's the major downside. But if you have a motivated team that will help you to do the assessment and you come in to do the ultrasound, then then it's it's definitely doable. Uh, The second downside is the the technique itself. You really need to recognize the limits. So you need to recognize when you're not sure and and not to overcall GCA and and to be careful to still get uh, other uh, tests done when you're not sure.
2: Let's talk about that. In fact, I think that speaks to the how to train up in ultrasound. How many people do you need to scan? What does the literature tell us? How many do you need to scan before you are considered expert enough to go do this on your own?
0: It takes about 15 to 20 patients, I think, to be comfortable. But I really became comfortable doing it after maybe 80 to 100 patients, where I became fast and, and more confident about the technique. And... What, what also helped is validating my technique, when it was getting biopsies, keep, the biopsies, keeping track of the results and calculating my numbers just to make sure I'm okay. So I think it takes about 30 to 50 patients to, to be more comfortable. I don't know what about you Dr. Baris? Yeah,
1: I guess the part I would add, so there is, there is a little bit of literature uh, in this specifically. Um, when, you, when people like Wolfgang Schmidt, like world expert, he pioneered the technique they say, they say between 30 to 50 normal cases is a good baseline to do so that you really appreciate what normal vasculature looks like and to look at normals sort of like 50 to 60, 60 to 70, uh, you know 70 to 80 to, because atherosclerosis sometimes can be uh, challenging to differentiate and you need to develop an eye for that. Um, what's really interesting is the, there's an OMRAC study where they looked at once you've done about 250 scans um, you, you, your sense, your interobserver agreement is really that clo- close to world experts, like people who have done thousands of scans. So we, there is a tipping point at that level where I think you've seen enough anatomic variability, you've seen uh, enough disease to recognize it, and you've seen, I think the most challenging cases are people who are partially treated. Someone who's just a few days on prednisone, super easy. Someone who's been on prednisone for a month, two months, three months, much more difficult, and learning some of those nuances takes time.
2: Uh, And and speaking to patients who have been on steroids for a number of months, how and what literature guides us in terms of using ultrasound actually to follow disease? Because PET scan, great for um, diagnosis and the NIH and in the States, they're doing uh, tons of really useful studies in terms of diagnosis and following disease. Um, I think our patients reasonably, they worry about um, radiation exposure. Maybe sometimes doctors worry a little bit less about that. That's just part of having this disease, maybe the medications more harm than the radiation, but we do want some other modalities, so can we use ultrasound in that way to actually follow response, diagnose flare, what do you guys think?
0: Well I think, uh, definitely, I think it's an emerging field actually where we're discovering more and more as we go along. There's been some studies already that's been done where uh, we know that the temporal artery, uh, the halo sign in the temporal artery can, can disappear after about a month of treatment. Sometimes it can leave a bit of uh, sequelae, but it usually goes away. Whereas large vessels can be more uh, variable where we can see the signs later on. So I I think we're learning more as we go along. And we're learning more also as we get better machines, also, because that changes also what we see uh, on on those exams. And I would just add to that I,
1: I completely agree with you. I think this is, as we get more data and literature, and as clinical trials in GCA switch to se- studies that want ultrasound as a way of following patients. We'll also get more data and um, so there, there are studies, um, as, a, as an example, like Secokinumab has a study with GCA, it was an ultrasound-based study, so they only went with centers that could actually uh, diagnose and follow people um, uh, with this. So I think we're going to get more literature in the, in the years to come. I think that when I spent time in Norway with Dr. Andreas Diamantopoulos, certainly he would follow his patients with GCA and we could and he would measure the medial thicknesses if they came back especially in the cranial vessels if they'd normalized and then you know you start tapering treatment they're complaining of headaches or some vague you know scalp discomfort you're not it doesn't quite sound right or there's a slight bump in the CRP He would look again take measurements again when you've seen that they've gone above th- normal threshold values or it's really gone up from before it gives you a very clear answer to the point um, made earlier no imaging modality right now. PET, MR, uh, CT, ultrasound in the large vessels really tells us over time what's remodeling change versus active disease. We don't really know, but generally I think it's agreed upon that we would expect the medial thicknesses to come down over time and not to go up. And if it's increasing, I think that becomes a signal for
0: relapse. What's really interesting about that, I, I totally agree, is that at this period of time where we have a, a, a new treatment for GCA with the and we lose the CRP, often we're, we're unsure if there's a flare-up or not. I think this is really important um, uh, to know and, and to assess. Uh, if we can show, demonstrate that the halo sign disappears, then later on we can uh, maybe prove easily more easily that there's a flare-up uh, on disease if we lose the CRP as a marker and I'm going to make a point on that. I found it very interesting when I was in the
1: UK. They are actually they have a tribunal meeting it sounds so cool, tribunal, right? So three, three rheumatologists get together to review a case when they want to put a patient on GCA on tocilizumab and one of the criteria is they can't start a patient on tocilizumab unless they're at a center that can monitor them with ultrasound because the question becomes once you knock out the CRP, how are you going to assess uh, d- disease relapse, or if they're actually responding to treatment.
2: That's really interesting and I, I wonder if that um, plays into the difference between the ULR guidelines on uh, on diagnosis and management and the upcoming ACR guidelines. Mo, can you speak a little bit to maybe some of those differences?
1: Yeah, let me let me see, I'm, I'm trying to read, <laughs> it's a guess what I'm thinking or guess my question, but I'll, I'll take a stab at this and you can clarify, but um, when we are at ACR this year, the, the draft guidelines are proposing is that tocilizumab is started up front as uh, initial treatment. Uh, certainly this has, you know, with, with this data we've seen in GIACTA, we can see that there's a huge uh, steroid sparing effect of using tocilizumab. I think that the, the, the concern I would have, certainly in, you know, I've now seen about 500 suspected cases of GCA between my time in Norway, UK, and in Vancouver, and I think there, there's a lot of cases, and even if you look at the, the UK data, up to seventy percent of the cases of suspected GCA aren't GCA. And sometimes to start someone on a biologic upfront, and you normalize their CRP quickly, and if their headache just goes away on its own, one, have you confirmed disease? That would be my biggest question. Two, uh, how are you going to monitor them? Monitor them. Uh, I think that becomes really tough. You know, um, I would personally. I think the UK system, it, it creates a lot of delays for patients getting access to tocilizumab, but it, it speaks to a point of how are you going to monitor disease.
2: Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. The draft ACR guidelines also pointed out that they are still advising temporal artery biopsy over ultrasound. Oh. because and, and I think their point is taken that ultrasound requires lots of expertise. So if you don't have it, don't use it. Um. Do you guys think that that is kind of the right way to think about that, or should the or or should we be saying there should be an an emphasis at training centers to teach up our rheumatologists or our vasculitis clinics to use ultrasound, and that that should be used, at sometimes to replace, but oftentimes to augment the use of temporal artery biopsy. What do you guys think?
0: Well, I think the ACR was wise with the statement because I think what they wanted to prevent is. No prescription of ultrasounds in centers that don't have the expertise. So that was, I think, the, the most important thing they wanted to do. So that was wise. However, I don't think they will stop. Uh, I don't think they will stop uh, training. Uh, some centers already do it in Harvard. Uh, they use ultrasound in Washington as well. I think there is uh, general excitement about it, but with caution. And. In Canada, you know, in, even in Montreal, I've seen centers prescribe uh, GCA, uh, a temporal artery ultrasound, where a radiologist did it, and I did the exam afterwards, and the result was completely different, and I had to do a temporal artery biopsy to prove that you know uh, I was right, and and I do ha- I did see many discordant uh, cases, so I think training is really important, and and not prescribing the exam uh, is wise if you don't have uh, the expertise
2: to do it. So those guidelines kind of represent the regional variation in our access. Europe, so. lots of access and lots of buy-in. Canada, we're trying to build it up, for sure. And you guys are really leading leading that in the States at very different center to center.
1: Absolutely. I, I echo the same points. I I, I I love ultrasound. I love the promotion of it. And I think to get rheumatologists scanning is fantastic. With vascular ultrasound, I think I, there's, caution is definitely important. I think... The emphasis on getting proper training is critical. I think the other part to think about is uh, in, some state, in some centers in the states, they've partnered with radiologists who are, who are leading this, and it's, it's, a, it's, it's a collaborative model. I think that's also a possibility. I think that being able to make that uh, clinical diagnosis at the bedside is so helpful.
2: So last thought then following that point, how do rheumatologists in Canada pursue training in vascular ultrasound if that's something they're interested in?
0: Well, if I may start, ideally, you, uh, you have to start learning to use the ultrasound for other reasons. So if you do MSK, that would be very helpful. Or if you learn vascular ultrasound as well, that could be helpful. And then learning the technique, I think the best way to do it is to uh, shadow someone who does the exams, scanning with that person, and then uh, after about uh, 15, 20 cases, to go and practice on your own and ideally validate your technique with other imaging modalities or with biopsies and, and try to get your, your numbers to know where you stand, and if you're not good enough, to, to restart the training. I think it's a, it's a dynamic process, and, and uh, you need to get better uh, as you go along.
2: What sort of courses would be available to kind of boost you a little bit?
1: Certainly in the U.K. with Dr. Dasgupta, Dr. Wolfgang Schmidt, Dr. Andreas Domitopoulos, there's an annual course in March that's used to be in Norway but now it's in the UK and they may change centers to Germany at some point but this is an annual course it's a great four-day course to go get core knowledge and expertise experience with scanning. Uh, last year in 2019 in October Wa- University of Washington hosted the first course as well and I can say that um, U- uh, US Sonar um, is involved in looking at creating uh, a longitudinal course um, where uh, people who already have uh, gone through their MSK training can come do that course, but we're piloting it at this point. But I think it, over time there will be more opportunities.
2: Guys, thank you so much for joining me. That was a great discussion. I really appreciate it.
1: Thanks for having us. Thank you.
2: Awesome. That was Dr. Mohammed Bardi, a rheumatologist at the University of British Columbia and US Sonar Fellow and Faculty accompanied by Dr. Jean-Paul Maxoum, assistant clinical professor of medicine at the University of Montreal and vasculitis expert. The use of ultrasound in the diagnosis and management of large vessel vasculitis is well established in a number of European centers and is just getting a foothold in Canada with just a few centers developing the expertise. Expertise seems to be one of the major limiting factors in more widespread adoption, despite test characteristics that are promising and certain advantages over other advanced imaging techniques. Getting the proper training to employ ultrasound in your practice may be the biggest bottleneck. That's it for this episode of Around the Room, the Canadian Rheumatology Association podcast. We are produced by David McGuffin, Dr. Dax Rumsey, Kevin Bajenoth, and Aaron Fontwell. We would like to give a special thanks to the communications committee and the staff of the CRA for their hard work. If you enjoyed your time with us, please give us a rating and subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. You can also share this podcast with your colleagues and spread the word on social media. I'm Daniel Ennis. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time.